Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Lord Jesus, um, Lord, we are weak, and Lord, we are fools, uh, Lord, we are sinners, and I just pray for humility this morning. Um, Lord, I pray for uh, myself up here that I would just believe, I would believe the words of verse 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And Lord, as we speak about words and as we read about truth and words, that, that our hearts and our souls would be moved Lord, to love you more deeply, as we'll see this morning, that shapes everything. So, Lord, I pray for our time this morning, that it's uplifting, that it's helpful, that it's clear. Uh, Lord, we, we know that your word will not return empty. Uh, so work in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like I said, we're going to be looking at Proverbs this morning, and the text we're in is quite timely, I think, for me personally. Um, this morning, we're going to be reading about truth. Uh, and in 2021, I'm, I don't think it's inaccurate to describe the idea of truth as controversial. Uh, maybe not the word truth. Uh, everyone has a truth. You have a truth. I have a truth. Uh, that's celebrated, and that's affirmed. But once we get into the idea that there is an objective truth or a standard of truth, that's most certainly objectionable, especially in our culture today. Particularly when we talk about morality and spirituality and religion and how we relate to God and how we relate to other people. And I say this is timely for me personally because, like I said, I spend my day job hanging out with college students and discipling and sharing the gospel. And there probably isn't a place on the planet, few places on the planet, where that idea of objective truth is more challenged than on a college campus. Again, especially regarding religion, morality, and faith. And I think there's a mindset that makes this specifically challenging for us as a culture. Uh, We've taken these two different ideas and we've conflated them and entangled them so much that we've stopped making distinctions between these two things. And those two ideas are truth, objective truth, and our experiences and how we experience life. We've taken objective truth and personal subjective experience and we've merged the two And that's what we call my truth. That's what we've ended up describing as truth. So when we have a conversation or read an article or watch the news or even read our Bibles, there is, it's all read and heard through this amorphous entanglement of our own experience and what we believe without really sussing out the two. So much of how we define our faith is dependent upon our life experiences and our our emotions and our feelings And this is as much a reality for Christians as it is for anyone. There are versions of Christianity in church that are built entirely on this conflation where we take our experiences, how we feel about those lived experiences, and let them dictate and prescribe what it is we need and how we want to relate to God and relate to others. And what comes out of this religious experience is something that pleases us. We've crafted it so that it pleases us and is palatable and tickles our experiences rather than something that worships God and pleases him. 
See, we have to untangle the two. And if we don't, we risk our experiences shaping what we believe to be true about God, about ourselves, about other people. See, and in fact, as a Christian, if we believe the Bible, if we believe God's word, as we'll see this morning, it is the exact opposite that is true, that the truth of God's word must shape how we experience life, how we experience God, not the other way around. The biblical reality of both truth and experience is that they're not one and the same, and yet they both matter. I'm not standing up here saying our experiences don't matter. They deeply matter. But they must be put in proper perspective in relationship to the truth of God's word. And so this morning in Proverbs 12, I think what we're going to see is our thesis this morning is that a heart of truth will shape the experience of the righteous. The way that we're going to see this is uh, in the beginning, we're going to start with this outward working, this uh, of, 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 of truth and of, of words specifically, and then we're going to progressively move inward into ourselves, into our faith, into our belief, into our hearts, to the most objective thing that anyone can know. And we're going to see these three ideas in our text this morning. First, the truthful lips of the wise, the faithful heart of the righteous, and the truth that saves. Those are the three things that are going to kind of help shape how we're viewing truth and its relationship to our experiences. And so if you'll read with me the first part of our text this morning, Proverbs 12, verse 13 through 19. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hands come back to him. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Whoever speaks the truth gives an honest evidence, but the false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. And this little section here is where we're going to see our first point this morning, and that's the, the truthful lips of the wise. And one of the first things we notice as we read this is speech, right? Lips, tongue, speaking, right? Verse 13 and 14, specifically, ensnared by the transgressions of his lips, from the fruit of a man's mouth. Verse 17 through 19, speaking about truth on our lips, truth in our speech, qualifying the speech that we participate in. And through the entire text this morning, that's actually going to be a theme, It's not just contained to these verses, but throughout this whole text, Solomon's talking about words and truth and how we speak and what we say. See, words matter deeply to the Christian. Consider the implications of speech and words as a Christian. Psalm 33, verse 6, says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, He puts the deeps in storehouses. In Genesis 1, how did God create the earth? He spoke, right? He spoke it into existence. He spoke and it happened. Through words, through the very words of God, existence was created. God spoke and the universe came to be from the outset of creation. Words and speaking are tied to God's creative character. And as human beings, we are image bearers of God created to reflect the very character of God himself. And so speech, in and of itself, is a way in which we reflect the character of God. There is a seriousness and a weight to words buried deep in our bones as God created us. 
but there are obvious limitations to our speech, right? Like no one standing out here speaking and creating suns and planets and galaxies or animals and oceans. Of course not. But what do we use words for? Communication. Relating to others, right? How does God relate to us? What's the primary way that God has chosen to communicate to you and I, to communicate to his people throughout history? Words. God has used words to relate to us. How is it that we know who, what God is like, who Jesus is, what the Son of Man is, what the gospel is, what truth and justice and mercy and grace? We know those things because God spoke them to us. God gave us words. See, it is through words that God created, and yet it is also through words that God has related to us. And in this way, we obviously reflect the character of God around us. God relates to us through words, and we relate to others through words as well. And part of that relating through words is our experience. People are going to experience you based on how you speak, what you say, the tone of your words. And you don't have control over their experience, of course, but you do have control over your words. You have control over your speech. The idea is that your words have an effect on you and those around you. The intent behind your words, the tone of your voice, and even the very words that we choose to use. Think about the way we try and understand God's word. Like, we want to understand the big idea, right? The intent behind what God's teaching in a text. But then we also want to understand the, intent, the, the tone of it. Is it encouraging? Is it a rebuke? Is it a challenge? Is it a, is it a call to action? And then we care deeply about the very specific words that God is using in the Bible. Any less concern from us Anything less from us is a cheap version of using our words than what God designed for us, meaning we should take great, great care with how we speak and what we say. Look at Proverbs 12, verse 18, kind of in the middle of our text. Verse 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Why, as Christians, if we have... It's not something probably we think about a lot, right? The theology of words or speech or how God used words and how God relates to words and how we relate to others. If we hold that to be true, though, why do we take such little care with how we speak and what we say? If our very speaking is a gift from God to reflect his character, why is it that we don't care about how we speak, but what we say? Why is it that we speak rashly why is it that we're thoughtless with our speech? An urge from the front of this text to the back of this text from Solomon is an affirmation of the seriousness of our words and our speech. Speaking itself is a gift. So we must use words not as, frivolous, not as a frivolous tool, but as a beautiful reflection of our creator. There's a call to speak differently. But there's a second element of relating to other through, others through words in our text this morning. There's what we say and how we say it, but there's also what we hear and how we hear it, right? It's the experience element. In other words, there's a reality of what's said and then how we experience the reality of what's said. Look at the middle of our text, our first section this morning, Proverbs 12, verse 15 and 16. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. 
See, the wise will measure their words. Solomon establishes that through the entirety of Proverbs. So the wise will measure their words and yet not assume the worst when someone else doesn't. And the wise will also not assume that it has it all, it, not assume to have it all figured out. The wise man will know that it is not totally wise. The wise man will therefore listen to and hear the wisdom and words of others, of the peers and pastors. And as I've wrestled with this text, like this section specifically, I don't see a, as much a promise as I do something to consider and assess ourselves. I see an opportunity for this, an assessment. So we read this list of Proverbs and see the destructive result of the lying fool and the gentle and peaceful result of the lips of the wise, and I can't help but consider my own, my own life. In honest introspection, do I, do I see more evidence of a prideful fool or the humble wisdom of God? That can be a sobering question as we read all of Proverbs, as it talks about wisdom and foolishness. And so as we read that text, and as we're talking about how we use our words, where are you finding yourself in here? Which of the two experiences do you most resemble? Do you find yourself putting your foot in your mouth, like I do? <laughs> Saying something that causes conflict with a spouse or a roommate, thoughtless with your words? giving little regard to your words as they thrust like swords, dividing friendships. You find yourself, in verse 15 and 16, prone to outbursts of anger and rage, unable to contain yourself when your sensibilities are offended. Is it obvious when you're vexed or offended? Maybe taking it out, taking it out on those around you. Do you find yourself rarely admitting you're wrong, thinking you don't need help? constantly blaming everyone else around you for your problems at work and at home. See, there's this insidious pride sitting at the center of this first section that believes the lie that it is never wrong, that it is always right, that it, and it doesn't take words seriously because at its heart, it never believes that it is the problem, that it could be wrong. There's an insidious heart that constantly justifies itself into believing that everyone else is the problem. See, at the heart of these verses is a fool that is always right in his own eyes, believing the lie that it doesn't need anyone or anything else, so it gives little regard to how or what it says. And if you find yourself like I do, as we've gone through the entirety of Proverbs, on the wrong side of these Proverbs then it's probably true that we most resemble the foolish man than the wise. Thinking too highly of ourselves, believing the lie of our own cleverness. Look back to verse nine, Tyler preached last week. Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man, the great man and lack bread. And look at verse 15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. There's this lie that believing in your own cleverness, your own intuition, thinking you're more than you aren't, it's a lie. Whether you've convinced yourselves of that lie or you're still trying to convince yourself of that lie. It's the temptation of Adam to think and believe through pride that it is enough without anyone or anything, especially God. 
But Solomon offers something better. Rather than pride, he offers humility. The way that humbly listens. The way that sees his limitations and his short-sightedness and his weaknesses. and The way that measures the, the words and the tongue before speaking. That knows itself as lowly and isn't pretending otherwise. And when criticism arrives, rather than being vexed, it considers deeply its own weakness and listens to criticism. What is true about the wise and the righteous heart is a humility that knows it's lowly. And as we said at the beginning, this text is going to dig into us. And it already has, right? We've gone from speech to how we receive speech to what's at the heart, a pride or a humility. But as is sometimes the case when we read Proverbs, we, we look only for the obvious, the external, the, the implications, the horizontal application of these verses. But Solomon provides for us, even at the end of this first section, something deeper, deeper implications to our speech, specifically truth. Read verse 17 through 19 with me. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. There's 19 truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. If speech itself is a gift from God and it's an inherent reflection of the imago Dei, if our deeply, excuse me, if our deeply and profound, if our words deeply and profoundly affect others, how important must it be that the way in which we relate to each other be built upon truthful words. And I think there's a distinction to be made here between truth and honesty. Uh, see, honesty is communicating what you genuinely believe or experience. I have a two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old. Uh, she's adorable. I'm obligated when I, every time I get up here to say how adorable she is because she's adorable. <laughs> but I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, and I think that it, like, it's built into parenting at this point, making a distinction between truth and honesty. Because as earnest as Harper might be to try and convince us that she's, you know, she's got potty training figured out and you know, she can wear a, a, a underwear, she doesn't need a diaper anymore, we, we, we know the truth, right? As earnest as she is, as, as much as she wants to be a big girl and not wear a diaper and wear her underwear all the time, it's not the reality of the situation though, right? So is it honest when she says, I'm, I'm ready to go, no diaper, yay. Is that honest? From her perspective, sure. She believes it. Do you think so? In her experience, it absolutely is honest. But is it true? See, truth is true regardless of whether you earnestly believe it or not. It's not enough to be earnest and honest. Truth matters. Ignorance is not a defense. The speed limit is the speed limit, regardless of if you know what the speed limit is or not. God's laws and God's character are still God's laws, still God's character, whether we know and believe it or not. And so truth matters. We're gonna, it's an idea that we're gonna make our way back to at the end of our text this morning, but it's really important that truth matters and there's a distinction between truth and honesty. And it goes deeper than intent, deeper than intent in the moment. Grabbing verse 19, we see an endurance, this implication that, 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 are relating through words and through truth goes further. Look at verse 19 one more time. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. There is an endurance to truth. 
an enduring effect of truth and lies. What is spoken from our mouths reaches way further than the sound waves that emanate from them. It's easy to concern ourselves only with the cause and effect relationship we see in Proverbs and see it only as practical wisdom. After all, that's what much of Proverbs is about, right? Describing the good that is produced from wisdom and the harm that is produced from foolishness. But Solomon's gonna dig deeper. Look at Proverbs 12, 20 through 25. Starting at verse 20, deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Did you notice anything there through those verses? The first section was pretty obvious. There's speech element, lips element, right? But what's in, what's in this part, this section? Where does humility and pride come from? Where does deceit and joy begin? Where does anxiety begin? The heart. The heart. This is our second point this morning, the faithful heart of the righteous. There is greater significance to the truths and non-truths of our actions and of our words than their mere effect on those around us. There is an internal reality, a heart at the center of everything we do and say. There's a heart at the center of our experience. And deeper than the mere dichotomy of pride and humility, as we saw in the beginning part, there is a heart that is either full of lies or a heart that is full of truth. The greatest and most profound reality of our wisdom and folly are their relationship, not to others, but to God himself. Look back with me at a couple of verses that we've read recently. Look at chapter 8 of Proverbs, verse 7. Actually, we'll read verse 6 as well. It won't be up there, but verse 6. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. Go to chapter 11, verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And then verse 20, chapter 11. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Now look at 22 of our text this morning. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. What is shaping the experience is either an abomination or delight. It's either truth or a lie present in the heart. The parallel of verse 22 of our text are lying lips and acting faithfully. Lying lips in this overall body of work, character. One translation, the, the, um, King James, the New King James, translates this verse 22 like this. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. See, our relating to each other, it matters. It matters a lot. It matters deeply. The way we do it matters. The way we influence others, considering others' experience with us matters deeply. But at the heart of our relating to each other is actually our relating to God. And not our collective relationship to God as a church. Like that, again, matters deeply, but that's not our text this morning. Our text is you, it's me, 
It's individuals relating to God. So what is at the heart of your, of my relationship to God? Is it truth or is it lies? Are you reading through Proverbs and listening to the sermons and see a transaction? Or God's word in general, do you see this transaction? Proverbs is simply a vending machine. Put a couple quarters in and get out some peace and joy and harmony and life and whatever. And honestly, like as we read it, it certainly doesn't seem like an unreasonable way to read Proverbs. Like do this and this will happen, do this and this will happen, do this and this will happen. On the surface, it doesn't seem unreasonable. Maybe thoughtless, but not totally unreasonable. But take a second. If, just, if your faith goes only this way, outwards, towards other people, and to yourself, if your relationship to the Lord is an inch deep and a mile wide, take a second to consider what that says about what your heart believes about God. Because if what consumes and informs most of your faith are those around you and your own thoughts and feelings, your own experiences, it's likely that the Lord, that God, that Jesus is not at the center of your faith and affections, you are. See, the lie today, specifically 2021, the lie today in our day and age says that faith and spirituality is more about you, your experiences, how you choose to relate to others and to yourself. The lie is that truth, objective truth of who God is matters little compared to what you're feeling and experiencing. That that's what matters. That what matters is you, not God. See, this is precisely why truth matters. More specifically, truth about who God is. If experiences, if experience, your experience is at the center of your faith, then you're going to be at the center of your faith. But if truth, truth about God, from the word he gave us, if truth is at the center of your faith, then God will be at the center of your faith. See, if we don't get that right, if we get that backwards, everything else, as we try and understand Proverbs and live faithfully, it's all going to be out of whack. If our experiences are shaping the truth we believe, we've got it backwards. Rather, it's the truth of God's word that should shape how we experience anything in this life. And because, because it is truth or lies at the heart that shapes our experiences, look at, look at the experience in verse 20 through 24. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. No ill, excuse me, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. The hand of the diligent will rule, the diligent will rule, the slothful will be put to forced labor. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. See, if you assess what's going on out here and how we're relating to each other, or even yourself, like anxiety, like our text says, anxiety, in the specific ways we've talked about this morning, and it isn't going how you expect, how you want, how you hope, if your relationships don't look like they should, if your emotions don't look like you hope they would, if something's going wrong out here, that's a good indication of what's going on in here is lies and not truth. That is probably closer to folly and deceit than it is faith and truth. 
And so what's the solution? What's the solution? What's the remedy when things aren't going well out here? Well, it's simple. It's return to truth. Not your truth, but God's truth. Thus, we find ourselves at the promise of our text this morning. Read Proverbs 12, verse 26 through 13, verse 5. Verse 26 says this, One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. In the path of righteousness is life, and in the pathway, in its pathway, there is no death. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but the scoffer does not listen to rebuke. From the fruit of his mouth, a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The Excuse me, the righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. So there's the whole text, the entire text this morning, the repeated affirmations of words mattering, of this heart connection to everything we say and do. There's this connection, excuse me, there's further connections between what's in our heart and how we act and what we experience. But at the epicenter of the text this morning is one of only two in this whole section, one proverb that doesn't make a contrast. One that doesn't describe the fool as one person and the wise as another. The righteous as one and the wicked as another. There's one proverb that doubles down on the point that it makes. Look at verse 28. In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. And this is the final point of our text in Proverbs 12 this morning. The enduring truth that saves There is only one pathway where there is no death. There is only one way that leads to life. We, as 21st century Christians, are so blessed that we weren't Israel trying to understand that in the context of a Messiah and Savior, but we have Jesus, right? We have the whole Bible to look to. In John 13 and 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's teaching them and explaining to them eternity and life and salvation. And he's explaining that he himself, he's getting closer and closer to the cross, and he's explaining that he's not going to be here forever, and he's going to die. And he's going to not stay dead, but rise again. And that there's an eternity waiting for him, waiting for them. And as usual, the disciples miss some of the point. And in John 14, verses 5 through 6, Thomas asks Jesus the way to eternity to God. What is this going to look like? And Jesus responds with words that maybe we've heard before and that sound really, really familiar verse 28 of our text. Look at John, verse, John chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The temptation when we read Proverbs is to work harder, to read it like an Old Testament Israelite. Try and live up to the standard to try and obey better, to get right with God, to please God, to be righteous enough to stay on the path of life in verse 28, the path where there's no death. And when we fail, pay some kind of penance or self-sacrifice and we start over again, trying harder, trying harder, white-knuckling it. That temptation is the great error that Israel would make centuries later, four centuries and centuries later, 
See, rather than trusting in the Messiah, Jesus, as the fulfillment of the way, the truth, and the life, the way where there is no death, they would try and fulfill it themselves. Paul wrote a letter to the, to the Roman church. Um, I love Romans. We're studying it with GCF. It's deep. It's thick. It's, it's deep with theology and truth. And in chapter 10, Paul is speaking of his Israelite brothers and sisters who don't know Jesus, who haven't trusted in the Messiah, haven't trusted in his fulfillment of the law. And in chapter 10 of Romans, Paul says this at the very beginning. Brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about his brother, Israelite brothers and sisters. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. There's honesty, zeal for God, honesty, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There was zeal, there was honesty, there was an earnest heart, and yet there was an ignorance. Proverbs, or excuse me, Romans 9 Right before this, Paul describes the righteousness of the Israelites as trying to earn it for themselves. He calls it righteousness by the law and contrasts it with righteousness by faith, a faith that trusts in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. See, the righteousness that truly matters for Christians, the righteousness that truly matters is righteousness by faith in Jesus. And as we read this complete picture of wisdom in Proverbs, and I can't speak for all of you, I speak for myself, I found myself more often than not on the wrong side of these pieces of wisdom. I found myself the fool and not the wise man. I'm the guy who puts his foot in his mouth. And so much more often do I experience the self-exalting pride of thinking I'm right and not admitting I'm wrong, especially in marriage. Proverbs should be doing this to us. It should be shining a light on our sin, on our lives, on our hearts, revealing to each and every one of us where it is that we're weak and sinful and foolish, where we believe untruths about God that are shaping how we experience ourselves, others, even God himself. It's revealing where our prideful and deceived hearts trust our own experiences over the realities of what God has spoken in his word finding big and small ways that we reflect Adam and not Jesus. And here's the hard truth. None of this is easy, right? We get none of this is easy. It's not, it's not easy to change. There aren't a lot of struggles that we have that we read about in the book of Proverbs that we're like, you know, tomorrow I got this, right? Like thoughtfulness with my words, you know, admitting I'm wrong with my wife, never gonna not happen again, right? No, it's hard, really, really hard. We want it to be that way. We can just snap our fingers and it's fixed, but it just isn't. But the easy truth, that's the hard truth. The easy truth is we have Jesus. We have Jesus. We have righteousness by faith, not by our efforts. We have righteousness by faith, not by the law. The, the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. The pathway of life and eternal life is through Jesus, not our efforts in law-keeping. Jesus was perfectly righteous and yet still carried his cross. 
to a hill and he died on it, not for his own sin, not for his own inability to be the wise man in Proverbs, but for yours and mine. That is the path of righteousness where there is no death. And while we're here, yes, of course we struggle. Sometimes we're, most of the time, for me personally, we're sitting under these Proverbs and I'm like, dude, that, I'm the bad guy in this story, right? And we fight, we claw, we want to get out of our sin. We want to do the hard work of listening to our peers and not being that hard-hearted person that listens to no one but himself. To root out that falsehood and that deception, those lies that we believe. But we do it not because we have to, not because our righteousness is earned by us, but because Jesus already earned that righteousness. And everything else becomes worship. So I think, I think the application, there's a lot of applications, Proverbs. Like every verse is application, right? But I think the theme that I see personally through all of this is to dig deeper. Dig deeper than the, your mere words. Dig deeper than what you say or how you act. Dig deeper than your experiences. Don't let you sit at the center of your worship. Let this shape the God that sits at the center of your worship. Take words seriously, both yours and God's. So dig, in, dig into your experiences, dig deeper than your experience, dig into truth. Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, God, thank you for your word. And um, Gosh, the more we explore even who we are as human beings and we see connections and words and in your creative order, how you chose to speak to us and how we relate to other people and we start drawing these lines, Lord, I, I pray that we don't miss the beauty of it all. Lord, and that our, our, our effort to take seriously how we speak and what we say. Lord, that it would merely be a reflection of taking seriously the objective truth that words matter because you made words matter. And Lord, I pray for our entire experience with, with Proverbs and your word as a whole, just all the ways we find ourselves weak and failing and, and lacking in righteousness and abundant in sin. Father, I pray that it would sober us, that it would bring us low, but Lord, we would rejoice that being brought low means that you can earn it all for us. And Lord, help us to trust in the righteousness of Jesus and not our own. In his name we pray, amen.